Hello, and how are you today, beautiful podcast family? What a privilege and honor to be with you again, as always. I hope that wherever you are on this planet, you are doing tremendous, and I am sending you all of my good vibes, well wishes, energy, encouragement your way. Um, We have an amazing episode of the show for you today. We have Rizwan Verk on, and we are talking about simulation hypothesis and bridging science mysticism and entrepreneurship riz is a very fascinating guy he's the author of simulation hypothesis um, zen entrepreneurship and uh you know an mit computer scientist shows why ai quantum physics and eastern mystics all agree we are in a video game so by that you know we are in for an amazing episode we talk about bridging science consciousness and mystics uh two versions of simulation theory the role of karma schrodinger's cat experiment the flow scenario in video games uh the work of joseph campbell the story of guitar hero which i didn't know very fascinating uh the six yogas of naropa uh, tibetan dream yoga lucidity test psychokinesis the world as a hologram holy crap the 10-year rule the pilot analogy there this episode's amazing i'm just kind of scrolling through the show notes here so you're gonna love this episode i hope that you enjoy it please share it everywhere on social media that you can even though i'm kind of censored um, but share it anyway tag me at matt belair on instagram would appreciate that also consider becoming a patron thank you so much to all of my patrons you really really help uh, go to patreon.com forward slash matt belair toss a buck in the bucket also reviews are pure gold if you just take a moment write a nice review on itunes that would be fantastic um also consider becoming an academy member when you do you get exclusive content you get access to training from past guests there is brainwave entrainment uh meditations and audio tracks in there guided experiences as well as the soul compass course you get free access to this and it is a step-by-step master system for overcoming self-sabotage strengthening your connection with spirit and designing and living the life of your dreams Uh, how to basically if you don't know what you want to do with your life what's your life purpose what's your life mission when you go through these 21 very short lessons they're very effective you will have a very clear direction on your life path guaranteed so if that's something that you want to figure out um you want to figure out how to you know, live a life of passion and fulfillment and what you came here to do, that is the course for you and is absolutely free inside the academy. So um, would love to have you in there uh, moving through that and you can feel free to ask me questions as you go along. Um, for those of you guys who want one-on-one coaching and you're really serious about putting in the work to design and create your life, hit me up at mattbelair.com forward slash coaching and would love to work with you. The best way to support the show, as always, is to do one kind act in your community, wherever you are in the world today. Even better, do three kind acts. Go out of your way to do it and don't tell anyone. That's it. Let's get into this episode by coming into a state of peace and coherence first. Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and just let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, enthusiasm, inspiration, and ready to take on this phenomenal episode with Rizwan Verk. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is a graduate of MIT and Stanford. He is a successful entrepreneur, angel investor, 
best-selling author, video game industry pioneer, and independent film producer. He is the founder of Play Labs at MIT, a startup accelerator for playful technologies held on campus at the MIT Game Lab. His previously published books include Zen Entrepreneurship, Treasure Hunt, Follow Your Inner Clues to Find True Success, and The Simulation Hypothesis, an MIT computer scientist shows why AI, quantum physics, and Eastern mystics all agree we are in a video game. He is the author of the new book, Startup Myths and Models, What You Won't Learn in Business School. Welcome to the show, Rizwan Verk. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Uh, so excited to have you. I just had an amazing uh, podcast with uh, Alex Sakaris. He's, uh, it was a great show and he recommended you right away. And uh, I got looking at your books. I was like, yes, please. Yes, please. Like, thank you so much. There's so much I, w- I want to ask you and talk about. Um, but why don't you give us a little bit about your background? It's really diverse. You've already written a bunch of books on very interesting topics. You know, you've spoken at Google and, um, you know, you, you kind of, you do a lot in many fields. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you got to where you are today? Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I graduated from MIT many years ago as a computer science guy and started off as a programmer and uh, started my first company back in the 90s uh, and, you know, went through this process of raising venture capital. Everything seemed to be going well. And then we ran into lots of issues. And it was, you know, when I started to examine you know, what these issues meant and how it progressed that I really started to come to realization that perhaps there's more going on uh, than meets the eye. And so that really got me thinking about things like meditation, things like karma, things like synchronicity, uh, things, you know, about the future and the past, which led me to investigate, you know, more with quantum physics and how the past and the future worked. Um, and then, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, I moved out to Silicon Valley and started building video games. Uh, we had a game called Tap Fish, which was the number one game in the Apple App Store, you know, back in the day. And we ended up selling that to a big Japanese company. And after that, I became an investor and started to, to work with a lot of different entrepreneurs to show them, you know, how to kind of build their companies up in the ground. And I started to notice again and again that, you know, personal issues would always make their way and kind of manifest themselves in the business world, whether they wanted them to or not, whether they were aware of them or not, uh, in terms of internal and external patterns. Uh, And then, uh, you know, I ended up starting this accelerator at MIT called uh, the Play Labs, just so that I could work with groups of 10 entrepreneurs or more together at at one time. Uh, And then last year, I, I wrote the simulation hypothesis, which was kind of bringing together my interest in video games, science, mysticism, and you know how it all ties to this big metaphor that we're all living inside a video game. Um, so that's kind of a kind of an overview of my career there. Yeah, amazing. Well, very short one. And so, where do we even dive in? I'm I'm super curious about simulation theory. And you've also, you know, you really bridge the gap between this uh, spiritual world, uh, metaphysical world, and you're also kind of looking at you know the limits of like the simulation or consciousness and how do we create. In a, in a meaningful way. And so you've got a really great practical grounded approach with also a very expansive view. And so maybe you can just start with uh, sharing some of your views or perspectives on getting clear on what it is that we want to do, 
um, what you believe the limits of consciousness or creation are and how you see those things and how do we begin building those models? And it's funny because I had uh, Alex on and he was get, kind of giving me crap for saying like, he said that like the wildest thing about, you know, if we believe this is true, it was so like mind blowing. Then I was like, yeah, you know, we can use our intention and create a life that is fulfilling. And, you know, we love we, what we're doing. He's like, you think that stuff works? I was like, yes, of course I w- it works, you know? And so um, I'm wondering if you can kind of start speaking on those topics. Sure, that's uh, quite a bit there. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I would say that, uh, you know, the, the way that I stumbled upon simulation theory was really as a way to bridge the gap between what science and technology are saying about the world and what the ancient mystics, you know, have been saying about the world and what people, you know, who believe in consciousness uh, outside of the physical world uh, believe as well. Now, there's actually two different versions of simulation theory. There's what I call the NPC version, which basically says that we're all running on a giant computer, and you know we're all like Rick and Morty, or you know we're we're all just uh, AIs, you know, within this computer simulation. And when it ends and they turn it off, and that's it, it's gone. Right? <laughs> there's another version which I call the RPG version, or the role-playing game version, uh, which is more like the Matrix version. Right. Uh, And in the Matrix, if you remember, there was uh, humans existed outside the Matrix, but then you had a character or avatar inside the Matrix. Right. And so that if you leave out the part about the super intelligent AI enslaving humanity to get (laughs) to, you know, get uh, uh, get get some electricity out of the brains, which was kind of the backstory of the Matrix. uh, But but if you leave that out, that basic idea that we exist outside of the physical world and that we are inhabiting an avatar uh, in the physical world, we're playing a role. Well, I found that, you know, that ties very closely to what all the religions have been saying. So it's not even a matter of, you know, okay, just the Eastern religions, which talk about reincarnation. In those cases, you don't really have to even make an analogy, right? The idea is you come in, you play a role, you go back, you have something that exists in between the lives, which they refer to as karma. Then you go back and you play another role. And, and you know, in the book, I, I talk about karma as being like a uh, database of information. Right? It just kind of lives somewhere and it gets added to over time, depending on what you do. And, and karma as a set of quests. But even if you look at the Western religions, you know, they also tell us, and by Western, I mean the, you know, the, the Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions, they also tell us that there are entities outside of the physical world watching us, recording us, right? And it's, it's uh, called the Book of Life, in Christianity and in Islam, it's called the scroll of deeds. And they're very explicit. You know, they even say there's these two angels and they're writing down everything you do. Now, writing down is a metaphor, right? I mean, these things were all, you know, written 2000 years ago. Um, But today, if you were going to keep track of everything that a person did, well, how would you do that? You wouldn't write it down in in text. You would just record it, right? Just like we're recording this right now. uh, And just like we do with video games, you know, we end up recording um, uh, you know, uh, within esports and on Twitch and on YouTube, you know, one of the biggest categories is watching people play video game sessions. And so, you know, it, the analogy kind of worked no matter what. And so I viewed a lot of religious traditions as well as, you know, a lot of what we would consider, you know, new age or uh, holistic approaches to really have the same idea, uh, which is that somebody peaked outside the simulation. <laughs> they saw what it was like out there, and then they came back and tried to tell us, okay, this is how it works. 
it's hard for us to grasp that because we're so caught into our individual avatars and we're playing the game based upon, you know, some set of quests and achievements. So in video games, we have quests and achievements. Um, so, you know, I don't know that I, I answered your question, but I wanted to kind of give an overview of, you know, why I thought, you know, simulation theory is, is so interesting because it ties into things like business, things like performance, um, you know, as an athlete or as, as a coach or just in life. Um, and I feel like there are things that we are drawn to again and again over time. Uh, and what are those things, right? Um, now, you know, if, if I, my, let's suppose I had a twin brother or actually my, my closest age in age brother is about a year older than me, but, you know, we pretty much grew up in the same same areas, had a lot of the same friends, but yet we we're very different in our personalities and what we wanted to do. Like I was always drawn to writing. I liked entrepreneurship as a way to create things, you know, whereas he also ended up as an entrepreneur, but it was a different motivation, I think for him and writing was not something that he was interested in. So I kept coming back to writing again and again. So if you had told me, like if you had asked me when I was in high school, what are you going to to do as a career, I would have said, well, I'm going to be a computer entrepreneur, and then I'm going to be a writer. Now, that's kind of what happened, <laughs> although it took me a lot longer to, to become a writer than I thought back then. I thought, oh, you know what, I'm older, like 28, which I thought was old back then. And really, it was only more recently, <laughs> you know, uh, I was much older than 28 when I finally uh, became, you know, a writer primarily, although I started writing my first book right around the age of 28, which is kind of interesting. But you know, I think we all have a sense of the things that draw us again and again. And I view those as part of our individual uh, storyline, just like we have storylines within games. And we have choices to make within those games, but there are still certain storylines for certain characters. You know, I might choose to play you know, a barbarian or a wizard that's going after, you know, the jewels of, of the crown and, you know, of the orc king, <laughs> whatever that story might be, right? Or the dragon, right? The treasure of the dragon, if you think of like the hobbit and you think of like that, that storyline. And I feel like we all have our storylines and they have very broad strokes for us. And then I feel like within those broad strokes, there's a lot of choices that we can make. Uh, and that's where a lot of conscious intention comes in. So, you know, I often view it not so much as creating something. Uh, like in, in, in quantum physics, there's this idea that uh, there are lots of probabilities out there. Uh, and that when we observe something, the probability wave collapses, you know, to a single result. And so, you know, the, mo the most famous example of this is Schrodinger's cat, where, you know, the cat is either alive or dead, we think, it's inside a box, and we don't know. And common sense tells us it's one or the other. It can't be both. But quantum physics tells us that's not correct. There are actually two probabilities out there. The cat is dead and the cat is alive. And both of these exist, exist in quotes, because what does that mean exactly? We'll come back to that later. <laughs> in, in, but that when we make an observation, we unlock one of those possibilities. And so, you know, if we think of the possibilities that are out there before us, I think we have certain things that are more probable than others. I mean, you're obviously uh, attracted towards athletics and martial arts, and, you know, that's an area that you felt drawn to probably all your life, right? If I'm not wrong. Um, you know, uh, I tend to spend more time writing and programming computers, which is a very non-physical, those are very non-physical activities, right? So, uh, you know, yet we're both looking at ways to enhance and, and improve our performance 
Uh, and, and so, you know, that's actually how I got into meditation was, Hey, will this meditation stuff help me, you know, focus more and be a better programmer and a better entrepreneur. Um, and eventually I realized that I had it backwards, that what was happening was all the challenges that I was facing in my business were in a way being set up for me. They were being created, uh, you know, they were kind of unlocked, just like in a video game where you have these, uh, you know, if, if you think of a video game, it would be pretty boring if there were no challenges, right? And so there's this idea in a video game, uh, in video game psychology called flow. And if the game is too difficult uh, on one side, then people get frustrated and they stop playing the game. And if the game is too easy, they also get bored pretty quickly. And so you have to tune the difficulties and the challenges that come up based upon you know, the skill level of the person playing the game. And there's like kind of a narrow band in between those two areas, which they call the state of flow. And I think you know, in life, sometimes it's that way as well. We get these challenges uh, and we can unlock you know, the next challenge by getting through this particular one, but we can also create consciously uh, a particular outcome by unlocking that possibility. Right? And, and so that's you know, one of the ways that I like to think about that. And hopefully that gives you at least some broad strokes on, 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 on your question, which had a lot of parts, I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love all that and, and it makes me think of a lot of different things. But the last example there is something that I use in coaching a lot. It's that when we, get, when we improve our abilities, we see more options, right? When you're a child and you're first trying to ride a bike, you're just trying to balance on that thing. You're not thinking about hopping a curb or doing anything cool. You're just trying to balance and not die. Then you get a little bit bigger and older and you, you learn how to use the bike. Then you can hop up curbs and you can go fast. You can bomb hills. And I think it's like that in life where as we develop skills, we see more options in, in the game or more choices, as you would put it, we kind of get to another level. And I like how you, you bridge all the worlds and, and think about spirituality and mysticism, because if we're just going around and we acquire things, not knowing why we're acquiring them or what the meaning is behind it, it it's empty once we acquire it. Or if we want to acquire something just for the material gain of that quick hit, it's like it's empty once you get it. But if you can tie it to something meaningful about why you're doing it, why you're moving forward, it, uh, it's, it's much more fulfilling. You know, it's, it's a game or a, or a choice that you want to make. And I think that leads back to freedom. And so I guess what I want to ask you is um, what's your recommendation for starting that for, for an individual who wants to kind of move toward what we would consider maybe a, a vocation, right? A life purpose, uh, a calling in Buddhism, they'll call it right livelihood. Right. And, and I feel like the world would change immediately if we could just consider that, right. Um, just right livelihood is what you do contribute to others in some way, or does it cause harm and, and making that choice um, and also kind of tying in, you know, what do you think the limits of consciousness are? Do you think that these mystics and avatars had uh, these extraordinary abilities? Do you, do you believe in that? And whenever you speak about those ideas, I'm going to bring up an image. Um, this is the one that I always think of, you know, seeing like peering outside the veil. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, people have spoken about that in mysticism and uh, their great books on, on, you know, whether they call it the oneness, the Tao, the, you know, supreme consciousness, God, whatever the case is, um, is it possible to access those states of mind to create more, not, not, not immediately, but in a more flow? Because I don't think we're supposed to reach the God state personally, because it'd be no fun if we just instantly manifested, right? It would be right. no fun. The video game would be uh, too easy. 
But over time, right, if we pick a meaningful goal over time, that's when we do extraordinary things as humans. And I feel like most people just want that instant gratification. And I know know that I do and I did. And now as I'm getting older, maybe a tiny bit wiser, I'm like, oh, you know, if I can dedicate five or 10 years to this goal and it has meaning, that's something that, uh, you know, I can use all these tools to create. So again, that was a lot. What do you think? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, let's break it up into a couple different pieces. But, you know, picking up on what you said at the end there about instant gratification. And yeah, too often, I think people want the universe to be, you know, uh, this kind of vending machine, right? You put in <laughs> the intention and out pops what you want. But, you know, I like to use the analogy, and this works for our personal lives as well as for our career. And if we are running a business for our business as well. And I like to think of it as an adventure. Right. And using the idea of the hero's journey and, you know, Joseph Campbell had all the stages that he laid out of the hero's journey from the call to adventure, crossing the threshold, the road of trials. Uh, But, you know, the some important parts of that journey, you know, are stages like the road of trials and a trip to the underworld. Right. Where you have to face your demons in many ways and you have to face your mortality. Uh, And it's really through going through those phases that you can get to the stage of finding the treasure which you know may be financial treasure, but is often a golden elixir that you can take back, you know, just like the hobbits at the end of the Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you remember that, but at the end, they went back to their little countryside in the Shire, they called it, right, to clean up things there. And so, you know, the real benefit of the adventure, you know, may be the internal change. Uh, and, and I also like to use the uh, uh, the imagery of an Indiana Jones film, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Now, how, what kind of a film would it be if he just got the map at the beginning and it said, here's an X, okay, go get the Ark of the Covenant, that's it, movie's over, right? Well, it would be a very boring film, right? So what happens instead is that there is this overall kind of arching goal, whether it's the, the physical Holy Grail or it's the Ark of the Covenant, but then he finds a clue and he has to follow that clue. And where does that clue lead him? doesn't lead him to the ark it leads him to the next clue (laughs) and where does that clue lead him to the next clue and so you know the film is a process of discovering these clues and then following the clues to find the next clue and you kind of hone in over time on whatever the treasure is by following the clues and i feel like that's how how life is and you know one of my uh, uh, one of my books uh, was called treasure hunt which is about um this idea of following your inner clues. And these are basically the inner clues. They're like uh, the, the sense that you have uh, that something is calling you, something funny is happening, or a synchronicity, uh, which is a perfect clue because a synchronicity is, an, is a co- coincidence of an inner and an external event, right? And so the simplest definition of a synchronicity is you think about someone, you haven't thought about them in a while, they call you the next day. Right. And so there's an outer event and an inner event. And it's when stuff like this happens that I feel like we're getting clues towards a direction that we're looking for. And so we've had feelings of deja vu. Sometimes we receive clues in our dreams. Uh, And so I feel like if we are able to follow the clues, you know, that can lead us to our both our true path, which is finding the treasure, 
but also lead us to the right challenges. And sometimes, you know, those films wouldn't be interesting if there weren't obstacles along the way. Uh, there's a whole cast of colorful characters. There's an image I like to use. It's from, I think, the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie poster, you know, which has Indiana Jones in the middle and it has all these people's faces around the outside. And some of them are his friends. Some of them are Nazis trying to stop him. But some, you don't know their motivations, right? There are these, they're what I call colorful characters. And you see these guys here in Silicon Valley a lot. When people start a business, they come out of the woodwork, right? And you're like, okay, are they trying to help me? Are they trying to invest in me? Are they trying to get me to help them? Like, what's their real motivation? You don't know. And, and, and that happens a lot in life as well. We get these colorful characters. Um, and so, you know, I think these little clues are, are a great way to bridge, bridge the gap. And one of the things that uh, I did in, in writing the simulation hypothesis was I interviewed uh, Tessa B. Dick, who was the wife of Philip K. Dick, the uh, science fiction writer. Uh, and, you know, uh, the writers of The Matrix, the, the Wachowskis, you know, they, they mentioned Philip K. Dick as one of their inspirations. And, you know, he had a speech in France uh, in 1977 where he said, we are living in a computer-generated reality, uh, and the only clue we have are sensations of deja vu that something has changed along the way. Right, and so he kind of put it in this science fiction perspective. Uh, now you can look at it in a spiritual perspective. You can say that these clues are coming from our guides or guardian angels or coming from outside the simulation, right? And, and they're trying to tell us to do this or to do that. And they're gently trying to guide us. Uh, or you can look at it from a scientific perspective and say, well, these are indications of the future. And so you have all these possibilities out there. There was a physicist named uh, Fred Allen Wolf, um, whose nickname is Dr. Quantum, and, and you know, he wrote how all these futures are sending us information in a wave. He calls it an offer wave. And then we are sending information forward in time. So these waves are traveling from the future to the present and theoretically to the past, but we are also sending out intention and signals based upon what we pay attention to. You know, I had a meditation teacher once who used to say, what you focus on, you become. And, you know, I didn't always quite understand that. And again, my, my I call it kind of the, uh, you know, the simple understanding is, hey, you want something, you, you visualize it and it'll come to you. And I think that, you know, that works to a certain extent, but anyone who's tried that knows that it works sometimes, but not other times. And you don't know, you know, what's the difference between the times that it worked versus the times that it didn't work. Uh, and particularly when you have to do it over a longer period of time, I think it's a little more difficult to draw the connections. I think it's a little bit easier with sports because performance is right there, you know, right away, whether it worked or it didn't work within, you know, a minute or, or an hour of doing the visualization, right? Uh, but, you know, if you're visualizing, um, you know, creating a book, right, it, it could take years to write the book, right? And sometimes, I mean, I, some of my books, including my, my recent one, uh, startup myths and models. I thought of the idea in 1997 <laughs> after my first company, and I wrote drafts of it. And and sometimes what happens is that the universe gives us clues, which indicate direction, but not necessarily timing. So it's almost like the future is calling to us, but that we don't know if that future is one years away, two years away, or in my case, 20 years away. Right? I ended up rewriting that entire book over the last couple of years when I was running the startup accelerator at MIT as a way to kind of provide a textbook for all the entrepreneurs who were going through it. And so just now, this year, just last month, it was published by Columbia 
Business School Press. The, the subtitle was supposed to be called What You Won't Learn at Stanford Business School, but they ended up taking the Stanford out of there because they're like, well, we're Columbia and we can't take pot shots at Stanford. <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. But, but literally, tw it took 20 years for this book to come out, and yet I had the sense, uh, you know, actually more than 22 years, right, that this was something I was meant to do. So I would always get drawn back to it after each startup adventure, after each investment, after each lesson I learned, it would get filed away somewhere in my mind. And I even, even attempted to, to write it and get it published before, but it was never the right time. Uh, and so somehow, you know, there's this element of timing that's very hard to pin down, right? Because people always want you know, one, two, three, four, they want like, here's the steps you need to take to succeed. The problem is sometimes in life, things take a lot longer than we expect. And there's a formless quality to what I call appropriateness. And it means appropriateness for you as a person, but also appropriateness for the time, uh, you know, that something comes out. So, you know, I think hopefully we touched on some of the issues that you were yeah, talking about. Yeah, well, I love that. Yeah. You brought up a, a lot of very important topics. And one of them is just the idea of, of reframing failure, you know, like, like these lessons or these challenges. Um, you know, a lot of the time people won't even start because they're, they, they're afraid of what people might think or they're afraid of failing the first few times. But if you do anything, failure is going to be a part of it and you're going to learn from that and move forward. And so... The question I wanted to ask you is yeah. um, if people are following the clues, you know, their inspiration, these feelings, and, and they come to you because you do angel investing and you see all these different things. Um, how do you help people like get clear on that idea? And once they've gotten clear on an, on an idea, um, what do you teach them in the book for becoming successful? And so a lot of the audience out there, some of them are, are entrepreneurs, they're successful, they're, they're building their businesses. And a lot of other guests and a lot of people that reach out to me and I do coaching with, they're like, you know what, I want to I wanna live a life of my passion. And so we go through a very simple uh, process and, and even people who have no idea what they want to do um, you know, they don't know their quote unquote life purpose or vocation. Well, after we go through a very simple process, they know it. And really it's just a list of questions and it's a back and forth because that part of them, those clues, those inspirations, they rationalize putting them in a corner for a later date. They say, you know what? I'm going to stuff these in the closet um, because it's not practical. I can't see how the universe or the game or the simulation will support that growth. And I don't know if you've seen this, but I've definitely seen that when people connect to that energy and that clue, the, the simulation changes. They quit their jobs. Uh, things work at their jobs. So they, they change the hours and then they start moving towards that passion more. And it always seems to work out, you know, every single time. And it's amazing to watch the random things come in to support them because it's, it's in alignment, right? It's in alignment with who they are and also the contribution to other people. It's not like a, a taking energy. I'm going out there to try and take like, you know, I'm going out there to give and explore. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit on that. And then maybe some of the um, ideas or perspectives that people won't learn at the business school, but um, to understand moving forward. And I think that failure is one of those, those critical ones is saying, Hey, it's okay to fail. It's a part of it. The challenges, the roadblocks, all that, if you can reframe it, and just be okay with failure, being okay with saying, hey, you suck right now. Like, yeah, I'm learning. You suck at everything at first, whether you're playing guitar, whether you're going through business school, whether uh, you're painting for the first time, whatever you're, whether you're trying to code a computer in your case, right? You're, you have so much learning and challenge. 
And as you get through that one first challenge, the second one will be a little bit harder, but you're going to have more skills and it's going to be your perseverance and your energy and your passion that will get you over that, that bump. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you make a really important point there, which is that failure is a part of the process of success, right? Uh, you know, it doesn't just happen. And so there's uh, actually a really well-known uh, video game franchise that was worth billions of dollars called Guitar Hero um, and uh, Rock Band. You probably remember that from about 10 years ago. It was like the, the big thing. And so it was about 2005 that they released uh, Guitar Hero, I think, in uh, Christmas of 2005. And it became an instant hit and, you know, the, like I said, worth billions of dollars in revenue. What most people don't know is that the people who started that company, you know, one of the companies was called Harmonix. There were two companies involved. You know, they came out of MIT back in the 90s and they just wanted to make music video games in 95. So they were 10 years before that major hit where they were there making, you know, video games and they, they would raise just enough money to get by and they'd release a game for Sony and a few people in Japan would play it. And then, you know, they'd go make another little music game for Konami or somebody. And, and again, a small number of people would play it enough to keep them alive, but not, you know, uh, something that would be considered a big success by today's standards, particularly in Silicon Valley. And so, you know, I remember talking to one of the founders and he told me, well, we thought of, should we shut this thing down and go do something else? But nobody else would just pay us to do what we love, which is make music video games. And so, you know, when there became, came an opportunity to, to create this, this music video game in the U.S., uh, they were the experts already because they'd been doing it for 10 years. And so they had been following their passion. And so, uh, you know, I, I think we have to reframe uh, failure in many ways. My very first startup uh, you know, looked like it was just, you know, going through the roof. And I thought, okay, you know, we're going to be a big success and we're going to make all this money and this is going to be great. And I don't have to work the rest of my life and I'll buy 25. I'll be a multimillionaire and all this stuff. And, you know, then I ran into all kinds of problems and that company did not succeed. And the VCs kicked me out, the venture capitalists, they brought in, you know, a gray haired experienced CEO at the time. And, you know, I, I, I went and took six months off just to recover <laughs> from all the stress. But turns out, you know, that was the experience that really got me thinking deeply, you know, about these things. And I wrote my first book, Zen Entrepreneurship, about the experience of starting that company. And so it's possible that if I hadn't had that experience of going from something that looked like it was going to be an easy success to something that was just very difficult and would be qualified as a failure, you know, I may not have written that book which may not, you know, and as a follow-up, I may not have gotten around to writing these other books. And so there's a whole path that unfolded because of that. And so sometimes, you know, it's very important that we go through these experiences and that we follow these clues, inner clues and outer clues. Uh, and there's different types of clues that come to us. Uh, so, you know, I think that's, that's one element of what you were talking about. Um, earlier, you had asked about the avatars and, and, and uh, the ascended masters and people peeking outside the simulation. I love that picture, by the way, that you showed of, of piercing beyond the veil. And, you know, there's a, there's a saying, uh, a mentor of mine in, in the shamanic dream work world called, uh, named Robert Moss, you know, he tells uh, a saying, I think it was of the Seneca Indians, where he says that, you know, the veil between this world and the next is as thick as the edge of a maple leaf, right? <laughs> which is really thin when you think about it. And so, you know, what it's trying to tell us is that 
the veil is thinner than we think, but we're so locked into a certain way of thinking about what's going on that, you know, we can't really peek outside. Uh, and so that's why, you know, I think for those of us that are trained to be a little more left-brained and a little more logical, you know, we, we need rules, right? We're like, I want to I know what I'm supposed to do, right? <laughs> What's the steps to take? Um, and, you know, there's a great, great book from the 70s called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, you know, and he talks about, you know, that there's a side to motorcycle maintenance, which is one, two, three, four, and that's how you, you know, go about debugging. But really the best uh, craftsmen are ones who can move beyond those rules, right? Who can kind of intuit what the next step should be. And, you know, that's kind of what happened to me when I was in business school. Uh, you know, we, 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 we were learning these things, but a lot of it was very left-brained. You know, they actually call it management science, you know, the degree that I got, for example, and, and because they're trying to turn something that's an art into a science. And so, you know, in one of the classes, we had uh, uh, a teacher that literally wrote the book on decision modeling. I mean, he wrote the textbook that we were using, and it was all about Excel spreadsheets and, and how to create very detailed models. And the, the idea was, this is how you make decisions. You put in all the numbers, you calculate out scenario A, B, or C, and you look for the best number on the right-hand side, and you say, okay, that's the one we're going to go for. And I raised my hand and I said, well, what if you just change those numbers on the left? He goes, well, then all the numbers change. Now it's the other one. So, well, how do you know what numbers to plug in? And this is the problem. Now, in very big companies, you know, if you're like working for uh, Toyota and you know how many cars you sold last year, uh, or you're ExxonMobil and you know, you know how much oil, how many barrels of oil you sold. In very big companies, you know, you use the past as a guide with some expectations of some changes. But for startups, the past does not equal the future. That's why there's opportunities for early stage companies. That's why entrepreneurs exist because they envision something new that might crop up. And so not only does the past not equal the future, but even the present doesn't always equal the future, right? Um, it, you know, it, it may be that you're, something is really hot today as a, as a technology area here in Silicon Valley, but it may not be tomorrow. And then day after tomorrow, it might be as well. And so, things change. It's like the dot com, during the dot-com days in the 90s, right? Everyone wanted to build a website and then everything crashed. And so you can't always make assumptions that the way things are today is how they're going to be in the future. So how do you, how do you predict? And he said, well, that's where you got to use your gut. And I said, oh yeah, the, the professor said that. Now they call it pattern matching, right? From looking at it from a conscious perspective, but I call it intuition because it, it, and I've seen this with many of the most successful entrepreneurs where if you just logically analyze something, nine out of 10 people would go a certain way, and, but they go a different way. Why? Because their gut is telling them that there's something else over here that I'd like to go after. Uh, and I think that's part of what makes a great entrepreneur. And so this ties back to our idea of clues uh, and, and how we're navigating. But I've gotten kind of into the practical world. I know we started off by talking a little bit about uh, you know, some of the, uh, the masters and kind of piercing outside the veil. And, you know, one of the, the traditions that, that I've spent a lot of time studying is, you know, within Tibetan Buddhism, uh, there's a, a tradition where they talk about the six yogas of Naropa, right? Uh, and Naropa was a Buddhist master in India back in, I don't know, 10th century, 12th century, something like that, a while back. And there was a, a Tibetan master named Marpa, who they called the translator, who trekked over the Himalayas back in those days, right? When you basically had to walk through the snows, uh, eventually found Europa and learned his teachings and brought it over the mountains, 
you know, to Tibet where it survived to this day because a lot of those Buddhist traditions in India have kind of vanished uh, over time. But so he preserved and, and, you know, these were like six different ways of kind of helping you to understand the illusory nature of reality. Uh, and, you know, one of the, uh, the six yogas was dream yoga. Right. And so, you know, the, the practice was kind of like what we call lucid dreaming today, uh, although that was only part of it because there was a spiritual significance. But the basic idea was that once you could learn to become lucid and wake up within the dream state, you would realize that the you in the dream and the dream body was not the real you, that there was another part of you that was sleeping in bed, but it was beyond this kind of made up world. Right. And so in, in the simulation hypothesis, I talk about, you know, uh, how do you create something that is indistinguishable from reality? Now, originally, I, I put my technological hat on and said, OK, how would we build a virtual reality that's indistinguishable from reality? And a few years ago, I was playing ping pong, virtual ping pong with this VR headset on. And it was so real that I forgot <laughs> that there wasn't a table. So I actually tried to put the paddle down on the table and lean against it. And I almost fell over. <laughs> and I realized, oh, we're getting there. You know? And it wasn't so much the, the graphics level. They weren't even that great. It was the responsiveness. Like it felt like there was a real ball that I was hitting. And the ball was actually hitting the table. So the physics engine of the world was real. The responsiveness of the video game was real. And so that, that's one of the things that led me to write this book from a technology perspective was how do we get there? So I laid out 10 stages of technology that we would need to get to, including brain-computer interfaces, where we beam in signals to the brain, just like in the Matrix. If you remember when uh, Keanu Reeves' character Neo wakes up, he had a uh, wire into his uh, cerebral <laughs> cortex. And uh, you know whether it was the Matrix or it was a smaller simulation, a mini simulation, like, you know, oh, I know Kung Fu. Now I'm playing Kung Fu, right? Um, and, and so I lay out these, and in Silicon Valley, this is very popular, this idea of building brain-computer interfaces. But in my book, I point out that all those technologies actually exist already. It happens every night when we go to sleep and we dream. It's a biological technology that our minds are already capable of deceiving us to thinking that we are in a simulated world and there's a, be there's a beginning and an end uh, and it's a fake world. Uh, and now if you, if you expand that to think of a multiplayer fake world or a simulated world like a World of Warcraft or Fortnite, uh, you know, which is very popular these days as a MMORPG, a massively multiplayer online game. And there are traditions, you know, where there's shared dreaming. Uh, but so, so dreams, you know, have been used as a metaphor for reality for thousands of years. Uh, and within the Tibetan dream yoga traditions, once you learn to recognize that everything around you is illusory, you can start to ma manipulate it. You can change things in the dream. Now, it's a lot easier in the dream state. Those of us that have tried lucid dreaming know, you know, we can have uh, lucidity tests. For example, my lucidity test is to fly. So if I can fly right now, then, you know, I'm probably in a dream and we're not really having this conversation uh, in physical reality. Fact is, we're having it in virtual reality anyway, because the bits are being transferred over the internet to you, right? You're not actually hearing my voice. You're hearing a reproduction of it using technology and bits. Uh, but, you know, you can change things in the dream state once you re recognize that there's another part of you and you realize the illusory nature. And so that is used as a way, not just a metaphor. So it's a powerful metaphor, but as a um, kind of awareness 
to recognize that what we call the physical world is but like a dream that lasts for a short period of time in the overall scheme of things and that there's a part of us outside this world and that there are rules and it's not quite as changeable as the dream state you know where i could just make my uh, my uh, laptop levitate uh but you know if you remember in the matrix they had this idea of the spoon bending right uh, and there was that uh, that little kind of bald monk boy who said, you know, remember there is no spoon, right? And and so I spoke at Google last year when when the simulation hypothesis came out, and you know I was talking about the computer science and I was talking about the the quantum physics and AI and that stuff was all great. And I started talking about the religions and people were polite. And then at the end I said, do you realize just you know, uh, last week there was a spoon bending party over at the Marriott at the IONS conference. And I showed them pictures of like 20 people with bent spoons in their hands. And they were all like, what, what are you talking about? There's no way <laughs> that these, you know, spoon bending is fake, blah, blah, blah. But it was because they're stuck in a view of reality. They don't realize that, you know, there is no spoon. <laughs> and so there are ways to manipulate it. And certain things are easier to manipulate than other things. You know, like, you know, they did research on psychokinesis at Duke University. And I remember meeting some people that were there. And, you know, he was able to move paper clips without touching them. Mm. Um, and first I thought, no, it must be ridiculous. He must have been doing something else, right? And I realized, you know, there are certain things that are easier, but they're still sporadic. And it's easier to do in groups sometimes than with other people. And so I decided to attend a spoon bending party myself not that long ago just to try it out. And I realized, yeah, you know, these people weren't lying. I mean, there are pictures that we have where now it doesn't work exactly like in the matrix where you just sit there and look at it. What happens is there's a period of time where the spoon becomes pliable and you can actually bend it using your finger very easily and then it stops and then you can't bend it anymore. And so how do you get to that point of pliability, which leads me to believe that there are ways to soften up things uh, based upon our intention. Um, you know, as long as they're kind of part of our overall storyline, I believe those are things that we can change along the way. So I think we started with this idea of ascended masters. And so I think, you know, uh, people who get to a certain level of realization have peaked out, right? And in, in Buddhism, you know, one of the things they talk about is before the Buddha reached enlightenment, which the literal translation was being awake, right? So the dream metaphor is just really strong within Buddhism. Uh, but, you know, he remembered his past lives, thousands of them. And so that would be kind of like remembering your different avatars that you played last time. Uh, and, and I view it, you know, I view it kind of like one of, the, one of the distinctions between Hinduism and Buddhism, at least, you know, as I understand it, is that in Hinduism, there's this idea of an eternal soul. And that soul is kind of going into a life and then going out and coming back to the next life. And so there's kind of a progression. And within Buddhist traditions, you know, the way it's been described to me is there's almost no individual soul, but there is something that they call like a bag of karma almost, right? And so you can think of it almost as information that's going with what we think of as the soul. And where does that information live? somewhere outside the rendered world. Like we can't see it necessarily. Some people can, but most of us can't see. Uh, 
and you know some people might call this the Akashic records you know in Silicon Valley we call that the cloud right it's sitting on a cloud server <laughs> and that's where the information is being stored and it's kind of a list of tasks and a list of quests and achievements and we're constantly increasing the list and decreasing the list as we go that's kind of the metaphor you know that I like to see like to use and so I think somebody who reaches that state you know has gl glanced into that and has has a connection with it uh, that's kind of my personal opinion on, on that <laughs> that was epic as uh, I had so many things come up while you're where you're speaking there and and I just interviewed Dr. Nisha Manik and she was very fascinating I love I love the show and she she had uh, I'm reading her book it's upstairs it's uh she studied with the physio physicist William Tiller are you familiar with him no, I think I heard the name, but I don't. Uh... Yeah, I, I never heard of him. I think he's at, actually at Stanford. Um, oh, okay. I think that's what she said, Stanford or Harvard, one of those. And um, what she was talking about is this mystical experience that changed her life from um, when she viewed a relic of the Buddha. And, and she had like this mystical experience of going to see it and basically the Buddha and these other people appearing, these other masters appearing. And that's why she went into physics and did all these other things. It's a pretty wild story. And so it just reminds me of like breaking the simulation in some sort of way, because even for me, um, thinking about psychokinesis or spoon bending, um, because I've studied magic, I think of uh, Yuri Geller who, you know, lied to people and he's like, oh yeah, we're going to do this. And he does a magic trick that you can't figure out, but some people can. And that's almost like, uh, it kind of makes me think about Star Trek now where when you're when you're so far ahead technologically you'll think it's magic and so that could also be in your consciousness it could also be in your your capabilities because we do have this incredible intelligence that we're connected to and when you speak about the cloud or the akashic records i think about like the information of the universe and how we're a conduit to that and i feel like whether it's the ascended masters or people or 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 human beings we all have access to greater information and it might be great to bend the spoon and, and that might be where we go, right? That might be within our capabilities and where we go. And, and, but what it's showing you is like the intention to create, right? And so I feel like a lot of people, sometimes they get distracted on, I want this thing because I have the power and now I'm, you know, doing this. But if you take that energy and you say, okay, what is it that I want to cr create in a fulfilling way? Be willing to overcome those challenges and roadblocks and apply that same principle, you know, connecting to that universal intelligence, the cloud, Akashic records, as you are the creator. And as you visualize and apply these techniques that are, that are from um, ancient religions, ancient mysticism, and then you're building it. You know, you're, you're calling in those boxes in the game that you need for the resource. And, you know, and then you try really hard and you get stuck, right? And then you're moving around this level. You can't figure it out. And then you kind of peer here. And then now you've got a whole new set of tools or a person comes in and you say what you're doing. And it's kind of like the universe, you know, guiding you as if you were designing the game and you see that Matt's stuck. And I'm like, please, universe, I'm stuck, right? And you're like, well, here you go. And that's kind of how I imagine I'm, I'm linking the worlds of spirituality and the stuff that I read. Like I got, uh, I think, uh, I don't know if you've read this, but the Bhagavad Gita as, as, it, as it is, a very fascinating book. And, and uh, the Tao Te Ching as well, because I've been looking at these ancient texts for how to navigate. Actually, and then the third one I have is right here is the uh, Art of War. So I'm reading all of them. I'm reading these two. They're easier. And I'm 
kind of peering through the Bhagavad Gita because it's a little bit deeper. Um, <laughs> sure. But to navigate this, this challenge, right? We're in a challenging times and I'm trying to figure out a meaningful, what, I, what I can do in a meaningful way to help uh, while I understand the negative forces that, that may be influencing this. And so where's that bridge of, of creating? Like uh, if a storm is coming, I've, I spend some time building the boat and then I'm, I'm cool because I now have a boat and I can put other people on the boat too. So it's been a philosophical debate for me lately. And what I want to ask, because I feel like we're kind of moving in that direction. If we're picking something meaningful, you work with a lot of entrepreneurs um, you know, you've seen a lot of success. You, you're in Silicon Valley. You see, you know, the mix of ego and people just, you know, you know, and, and you see the hardcore analytical, they probably can't get their mind off the screen and computer. And so how would you suggest, uh, or, or, or give some principles to somebody who wants to look into entrepreneurship, start to find those inner and outer clues and say, you know what, I got an idea. How do I start? What are some principles that I can apply to ensure that I'm successful or giving myself the best chance of success moving forward in the entrepreneur space? Uh, sure. So, um, yeah, you brought up a lot there, including Star Trek, you know, which is you know, one of my favorites. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek uh, was uh, in The Next Generation where, uh, you know, Data plays Sherlock Holmes and he goes into the holodeck and they've created this replica <laughs> of the Sherlock Holmes world. And one of the characters who's an NPC or AI, uh, who's uh, Sherlock Holmes' nemesis, Professor Moriarty, figures out that some of these people are not from here. <laughs> They're from outside, you know, what is the holodeck. He doesn't know it's a holodeck. They're from the rest of the, the Starship Enterprise. But I think that, you know, that there's this idea that in, in Star Trek, you can create what looks like matter from information. And there's a replicator where you can create you know, uh, uh, a cup, right? Or you can say tea Earl Grey hot and it'll just create it for you. And we're actually going down that path because we've got, uh, you know, 3D printers now and 3D printers can print with different materials. It used to be just this kind of gray plastic epoxy, but now, you know, you can use 3D printing with metal and there's 3D printing with, you know, living cells. Uh, they're not all combined yet, but at some point, you know, you start to see the convergence of information and matter. And in fact, in, in, in physics, the more they look for this thing called matter, the more they can't find it, right? It's like, where is it? Is this table, you know, real? Well, if you zoom in, it's mostly empty space and there's atoms and you zoom in in the atom and it's mostly empty space. And then you zoom in to where the electrons are and you, you say, where are these electrons? You zoom in on the protons and then you go in. And what they found at the very bottom level is, that basically it comes down to there is no such thing as called matter. There's just properties of matter, and which is just information. And so there was a famous physicist named John Wheeler who worked with Einstein. He was at, uh, I think, Princeton's uh, Institute for Advanced Studies. And, uh, you know, he, in the 80s, uh, he came up with this phrase that called it from bit. And he said, everything that we think is an it, a physical thing, is actually bits of information because <laughs> at the bottom level that's all you could find when you get down there and he said physics went through three stages of phases in his life at the beginning they thought everything was a particle so they thought everything consisted of solid matter uh, and they said later they thought everything was a field of probabilities and then 
eventually he came to the realization that everything is based on information. And so, you know, there's that underlying idea now in physics called digital physics that the universe is like a hologram uh, where the amount of information is, is determined by the surface area, like in a black hole. The amount of information is determined by the surface area. And you can lose information too. And if you can lose information, then you don't know, you can't be sure about the past. So now we get into very troubling ideas of, did the past really happen, right? You know, I was on uh, Twitter talking about the simulation hypothesis the other day, and there was this uh, kind of well-known actress, Sarah Silverman. You know, she's been in a bunch of different shows, and, and, and she said something about the simulation hypothesis. And so I was like, oh, it's kind of cool to see her tweeting about it. And she said, oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Last Thursdayism. And I was, I was thinking, Last Thursdayism, that sounds familiar. And I looked it up, and it was basically the idea that the universe was created last Thursday, <laughs> which or last Wednesday, or whatever day you happen to like. But it's basically similar to this idea of false memories and how do you know that the past is what you think it is? Now, we've gone far afield from your entrepreneurship question. <laughs> uh, but I was trying to talk a little bit about the first part of the question, which dealt with kind of information. And, you know, if the whole universe is information, if the past is even changeable, and there's actually evidence that there may be multiple timelines, uh, this is a whole other area we'll get into <laughs> in a little while, then there may be multiple timelines in the future as well. Uh, and so remind me to talk about that in a minute, but as we kind of bring it back to uh, entrepreneurs and uh, you know, how can people use it to, to find something that they're passionate about. Um, and you know, I always tell people, follow the clues, use your intuition, but you have to use the left and the right brain, right? You can't just use the right brain. I mean, if you just had a dream about Italy and you say, okay, I'm gonna wake up this morning and I quit my job and move to Italy. Well, that may not be the wisest thing to do, right? Uh, but it, it could be a clue and a direction that you should start looking into, look at places in Italy where you might want to go, what might you do there? And then eventually, you know, like you said, somebody comes in that can help you. There's like all these things that happen, right? Circumstances kind of rearrange themselves and people come out of the woodwork that validate the clue, right? And so, you know, that's an important part is to be able to use both of those. I think some people are too uh, right-brained where they're just totally intuitive, but they don't always make it in the world because <laughs> they're not super practical. And then there's people that are so left-brained that they get locked into their patterns of analysis, like I talked about earlier. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that if analysis worked, then there would be no entrepreneurs and no new companies mm -hmm. coming out. Because the big companies do analysis all the time. I mean, they got people on their payrolls who are MBAs who just put together spreadsheets. I remember a friend of mine was at uh, General Motors, um, you know, graduated in the 90s like I did. And, you know, when the Prius came out, uh, back in, was it 2005, I think, uh, the, you know, the Toyota Prius is a um, hybrid car. He said, oh yeah, we looked into hybrid cars and electric cars and we did the spreadsheets and we realized they don't make any sense. So that's why we didn't do them. Turns out GM did have an electric car and they shut it down, right? Mm -hmm. uh, back in the 90s. But this is why there's an opportunity for entrepreneurs because an entrepreneur might have the intuition, uh, you know, like, Elon Musk did with the Tesla guys, the founders of Tesla, that he funded and then later became CEO of, uh, that there is a market for electric cars. Now, I, I don't recommend going in the electric car company, you know, electric cars as a business because in Startup Myths and Models, my newest book, I talk about how startup markets evolve over time. 
This is true of mobile games. So when I did a mobile game, Tap Fish, it was in 2010. It was in the early days of the App Store. So, you know, practically speaking, it wasn't that hard to get a game built uh, and it wasn't that expensive to market a game. Uh, today, there's games like Fortnite and Pokemon Go with like 100 million downloads. I mean, you would literally have to spend millions of dollars in advertising to succeed. So what's happened is the market went from a very small, nascent market to a very mature market with multi-billion dollar players. Now, I grew up in Detroit. I was just talking about cars. Well, back in the 20s, you know, I used to always wonder growing up, like, why is there Buick and Oldsmobile? Why isn't it just GM? And why is there Dodge and all these brands? And I realized later, you know, as I became an entrepreneur, I said, these guys were all garage entrepreneurs, you know, <laughs> Mr. Buick, Mr. Oldsmobile, whatever, you know, they each built cars in their garage. Uh, it could be done back then because it was a new enough industry. And then eventually they got consolidated and these, these became the biggest industry in the world for a while the automotive industry. That's why for Elon Musk to tackle it, he needed $190 million of his own money, plus $300 million of the government's money. Now that's too much for most of us. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what I'd suggest is to find a market that is a small market today, right? Some people say, I'm going to build this thing that everybody needs. And I say, well, why don't you focus on building something that a small number of people need? <laughs> why? Because that's probably overlooked by the big guys. So you can, and, and it's something that calls to you. So if you have that need, your intuition will be very strong uh, that there is a real need here. Um, and then now what you don't want to do is follow your intuition into a market that's declining. <laughs> so you want a small market that's getting bigger, not a big market that's gotten small. You don't want to go out, like there's a great South Park episode where they decide to buy a Blockbuster video for $10,000. He's like, wow, I bought the whole store for $10,000. Of course, nobody's renting videos anymore. <laughs> so you don't want to be that guy, but you do want to be the guy who started Blockbuster back in the 80s, right? So, you know, you want to find a small market that you are intrigued by, right? This is, in my opinion, the most important thing. This is where we bridge the gap between intuition, your life purpose, your passion, uh, and what you might do from a practical sense is it something that, that you think about day and night, right? Because it, it does tell, I'll be honest, it takes a lot of work, right? To, to, to build a business up and to make it successful, particularly in the early days. And so you've got to have a sense for it. Uh, and I've seen a lot of failures as well. Uh, you know, so I've seen lots of successes and I've seen many more failures in the startup world and it's just a you know just a fact that 90 percent of these businesses fail so you want to find something that gets you up in the morning and you're like oh, i can't wait to work on this i'm really excited about this that's really how it should be but then you need to balance that with something that for which it's a small market that you can dominate and it's growing because mm -hmm. if you're if you're doing that you could end up with the next 10 million, 50 million, 100 million, billion dollar company because the markets grow and that's how new leaders are created. You know, it's a story of when I was at MIT, one of my uh, roommates uh, went to Japan. We, we had this program where you go to Japan for the summer and do like an internship. And so I went one year and he went the next year and he was telling me about a guy he met uh, whose name was Jerry, who had this dinky little thing. This was back in the early 90s. He had this dinky little thing. It was like a directory 
of things called web pages. <laughs> he had never heard of them. It was just a list. It wasn't even anything, you know, that exciting. And I remember he, he thought, this, what's this dinky little thing? Like, why is he wasting his time on this? Well, that guy was Jerry Yang, who started Yahoo a few years later <laughs> uh, with that same directory. And he became a billion dollar plus company. And it was, you know, he was there and intrigued him. Other people were not so intrigued by it. It was before everybody was jumping in. Um, so, you know, I often like to say that uh, success in life and in business comes from when you can find the intersection of three things, uh, three circles. If you think of it as three intersecting circles, one of which is what is it that you like or are passionate about, right? Because if you're not in that circle, you're going to get bored or frustrated. The second is what are you good at? Okay. Now, this is actually kind of important too, right? That uh, it can take you time and that's fine if you want to take time to get good at something. But there are things that we are naturally good at compared to other people. Like I was a good computer programmer from the first time I tried to write a little text adventure game in the seventh grade, right? I had a natural inclination for it. Now, I'm not saying that other people couldn't be good programmers who didn't have an inclination for it. It'll just take you a lot longer to get there. And sometimes we don't know what we're good at. Uh, but, but that's why it's sometimes good to listen to what other people say. Uh, what, are, what are we good at? So what do we like? What are we good at? And then what does the market need is kind of the third circle, right? Because you could like to do artwork. You can be good at it. But if you're creating artwork that the market doesn't need, it's still a great thing to pursue. But I'd pursue it part time because it, it's a passion or what we call, uh, you know, a passion project, which then over time, as the world wakes up to your brilliance, can turn into something more full-time into, into a real opportunity down the road. Because sometimes, just like with the Guitar Hero guys, you know, it took them 10 years, right? So, you know, you got to find a way to keep doing those things until that third circle, which is what the market needs, starts to give you the external clues. So the first two are internal clues. The second one is external clues. And if you follow the, if you're able to, to match those, if you can really hit the intersection of those three circles, then, you know, you can be happy and successful, which, you know, is, is the trick, I think, for many of us. That's amazing, man. Well, it's, it's so practical, you know, it's like, a, and you're correct in the right and left brain. What it reminds me of is from one of my first business coaches, they were talking about, um, you know, they're asking me when I was doing Zen Athlete, he said, hey, are you doing um, business or are you doing art? And I was like, what the hell do you mean? And uh, he goes, well, you know, uh, art is like the expression of you and something that you're passionate about and creating. A business is solving a need. And I thought about it as oh, crap, but you know, right now I'm, I'm doing art. Like I, it's a bit ahead of time. And, and I knew that even when I wrote Zen athlete and was teaching this 10 years ago, I knew that mental training for sport was ahead of the times, but behind the times at the exact same time. And was the market ready for that need? Did they, did they want that? Because, you know, generally they weren't thinking about it, right? It was a hard sell. You got to sell them that mental training actually works. And now people are starting to wake up to it a little bit more. They're saying, oh no, sports psychology works, visualization works. Um, this stuff is actually real. And even though it's been used for thousands of years in different traditions, um, it wasn't just culturally accepted yet. And so um, it's, it's so important. And I like the idea of the, uh, the guitar hero guys, because when I'm coaching now, I say, hey, until we get something that you're, you're ready to work something 10, 10 years on, um, we haven't found it yet and that might be the passion project and you can use your analytical brain to create a business and sustain yourself over time and even you if you chipped away that's going to start to um 
add weight or financial uh, reward. So it might, it might take a while, right? Like yeah. if you're thinking of weights and scales, you've got your business and you're doing insurance or whatever. And you know, you start working on your passion project, you get your first couple bucks, you get better at it, you go and go and go. And then there's going to come a time where you know you can commit full time to that. And so you're, you're really right about um, seeing it as in a practical way. And just the problem is so many people, they don't consider the passion, the passion part. They don't think about that entrepreneur path or, or like, like you said, when you use the Italy example, they're like, oh yeah, I'd love to go to Italy and then that's it. And if they just add, you know, I just did Stephen Kotler's, uh, one of Stephen Kotler's courses and, you know, just talked about 4%, you know, just, just um, improving 4%, but also chipping away at, at the things that you're passionate about a little bit each week. So maybe it's half an hour every night or 20 minutes a day and the problem is people give it a hard zero. Right. And so if you did 20 <laughs> yeah. minutes a day for six months, it's going to change your whole trajectory for how you go and what you do. And then that might flow into 30 minutes, an hour, two hours. Then before you know it, once that energy of passion comes in, you're going to be done your job and you're going to be working two or three hours on something that you're passionate about. But if you, if you don't have that love for it, if you don't have that um, you know, curiosity and that drive and you're not following the clue, you're, it's, you know, you're just going to kind of be, i say like creating life by default. It's just going to give you what it gives. And, and, uh, and that's that. And I think that in our life here, we do have an ability to create a reality. And I was just talking to one of my best friends was visiting. I hadn't seen him in a while. And we really just did a deep dive on a conversation of the idea of intention versus surrender, because in this, life in the simulation it's so big it's there's we only know a tiny tiny bit of a tiny tiny bit the information we've had and then we forget it and distort it and manipulate it in our own minds um, right and then it changes and adapts and we make these new discoveries that make the old ones obsolete so we only know a tiny tiny bit but we do know our intentions and we do know our intuitions and so if we can do that and not and surrender the result i feel like we're in a very powerful creator space and in this reality um, it's an opportunity to create and we do it from a, uh, a positive intention that's expressing ourselves in an honest way. I feel like it's harmonious to all the other entities, uh, you know, nature, like the whole thing. It's kind of harmonious in every single way. So do you want to add on to that rant? It's not a question, but what do you think? <laughs> yeah, sure. I think you hit on an important point there, which is this intention and surrender. Uh, and there's a fine line I think between them and usually when you have these types of tensions, you know, it, it's really hitting at something that's important, I think. Uh, and it, it's true. You know, I talked about the left brain and the right brain uh, and how you need to find a balance between the two. And so I feel like, you know, putting out intentions is important, uh, but also many people don't surrender to the results, you know, and sometimes there, uh, I remember there was a phrase that I don't forget who said it, but he said, there are no unrealistic goals. There are just unrealistic timeframes. Right? Uh, and so, you know, I think we have to be open that the results may come in a slightly different way than we think. But if we keep chipping away at it, we will eventually, you know, find the fruits of our labor. And, you know, I'm a writer. And so it's the same kind of thing for most people, their first books, you know, are written part-time, you know, in the evenings or before work or at lunch. And they, you do it because you kind of have to. It, become, it starts off as an art. And so there's the tension, as you said, between art and business, right? And there's a point at which it can become a business. 
I remember uh, uh, attending a talk by Doreen Virtue, you know, who's a, a best-selling author from May House. And she said, you know, her first few books had nothing to do with the books that actually made a lot of money down the road. And she goes, when you get about 10 books, that's when you can support yourself from it, right? And so there was this idea that there is a progression. Every now and then, somebody has a first book that's a huge bestseller, you know, like Stephen King would carry, and he, and he gets $200,000. But for most people, that's not how it works. You build up over time, and then you build that reputation, and then you're able to go out and do it. And, and I think that just comes from following your intuition and navigating in a practical way but yeah, I, I do believe that we can influence our reality. Uh, but at the same time, you know, sometimes things do happen to us or our lives or big events that are outside of our control. And so we have to learn to surf, you know, these external situations uh, and, and, you know, not get discouraged because I think that happens a lot too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, you know, I could talk to you all day. I, I would if I didn't have, I'm on babysitting duty coming up soon. Um, I can hear my little one yelling at me, but uh, I appreciate your time in this, in this podcast because, you know, you're a guy who's achieved a lot of success. And I think that you balance both ideas, right? You don't like attach all the way into the mystical, like you're open to the mystical and, and all these stories and, and, you, and you're perceiving it and honoring it in a way. And you're also very practical, very grounded, you know? And so you're merging the two worlds, recognizing that they're equally important and also saying, Hey, you can do this. And, and having these um, just practical lessons, like there's, you know, I think again with Silicon Valley and some of the ways that I, I see people speak about it, it's like, let's go do this and we're going to make all the money. But when we can get to those, uh, those three intersections, like you said, keep it simple. It's going to be fulfilling. It's realistic. Right. And, and the, and it's very probable. I say that if you pick something, um, or I think anyway, I'm going to say it too. Uh, you know, if you pick something that you're willing to spend 10 years of your life on, um, it's inevitable whatever you're setting your goal to is inevitable and it might take a little bit longer, but it, as long as you don't give up, it will happen. And so if it's just a general direction, like you go, okay, Italy, then you're like, oh, well, what part of Italy? Okay. What do I want to do in Italy? And all of these things are clues from who you are. And the, there's always a space in the simulation for you. That's perfect for you. You know, it's, it's just exactly for you and you can build it. You can, in this simulation, you can make your own staple, right? And it doesn't have to be, um, you know, I think it's with the right intentions, right? It's like, I'm only doing this to make a bunch of money. You can do that and you can be successful with it. But if that's your, your motive, you're probably not going to be as fulfilled if that's just what you're doing it for. But if you can kind of merge in, like, I love doing this, I would do it anyway. And I, and I want to be able to support myself and, and make a good living from it. That's great because I'm doing something that I enjoy and it, it's your life. You know, you want to enjoy your life. You want to have an impact. You want to have these different experiences. So that's just a, a bit of a rant. Do you want to, you want to add it on that, any of that? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I like your 10 year rule, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, that, that is a good way to think about things over the long term, right? Uh, and to think about the direction that you want to go in, and then you start to hone in. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a saying about being a pilot, where, you know, 90% of the time, uh, the aircraft is actually off of the route and you, what mm. it means to be a pilot is just to keep putting it back on the route and to keep kind of honing in on, on where you're going. And obviously it helps to have a, <laughs> a destination in mind. Right. Uh, and, and so, so, you know, I, I kind of agree with that, that, uh, you know, just because something seems formidable, 
uh, doesn't mean that it can't happen. Uh, it's just that you have to keep at it until the circumstances uh, kind of work themselves out for you. And by doing a piece at a time, you can get closer and closer, you know, to that goal. And like with the simulation, you know, in a video game like Minecraft, I can just, you know, create whatever I want or uh, Second Life, which was kind of a virtual world. You can just create what you want quickly. But in the physical world, things may take a little bit longer, right? Building a house is not something you can do in two hours. Right? It takes, you know, it might take a year to get all the plans and get all the materials and get all the contractors lined up. Uh, similarly, creating a, a part of your life, if you think of it that way, you know, there has to be some purpose for it, I think. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's I, I used to wonder about this because some for some people, you know, things will just happen, boom, automatically without them really working at it at all. And for other people, it won't happen so quickly. And I started to wonder, you know, what's going on here? And it happened for me too. Sometimes things would just magically happen and other times I have to work at them over a long period of time. <laughs> and, you know, and I think, and, and so I started to question, you know, what, what is the difference? Is it all random or is there some order to what's happening here? And, you know, this is where I think the whole simulation and video game idea comes up. It's that we are here to have different experiences. Uh, and if we're, if we're meant to have a particular experience, if it's appropriate, whether it's a quest or an achievement or karma or something we're drawn to or a person, right, that we're automatically drawn to the first time we meet them, right? Some people would say that's a past life connection. Some people would say it's random. But whatever you say, there are experiences that we're meant to have, uh, then circumstances rearrange themselves quickly. Uh, but, mm -hmm. you know, as I said, sometimes the clues indicate direction and sometimes timing, but rarely both. And as long as you're okay with that, <laughs> that some things may happen over a long period of time, then, then, that, then, then you'll be in good shape. Amazing, man. Yeah, super well said. Um, I definitely, again, I, I just enjoy your, your view on it because you're somebody that I think a lot of people who want to be a successful entrepreneur, right? Um, like how I imagine is just what they show on Instagram and what the TV is like, oh, we're on Silicon Valley and we're successful. You're actually that guy. You are that guy. And um, it just, it's making it... Uh, not fantastic, you know, when people just, they kind of like glorify the whole thing, whether it's like music or whatever. It's like, hey, like, let's just be real about it because what's the important thing and how do you get here? So many young kids and, and, and you know, what just the idea of what success is, I feel like is being very distorted. And I think that you're a great ambassador and role model for helping people, you know, get to that space. So when they actually get there, they're happy they got there. They can, they can enjoy the ride. They can kind of understand some of the principles um, and get to that space. And when they arrive at, you know, the quote unquote first success or for you, right, it would have been an up and down. Yeah, I'm successful. Oh, no. Road bumps. I'm back here. They're, they're going to be able to navigate that ride a lot better. And so you put it in a very grounded, uh, realistic way. And I, and I really appreciate your, um, your insights. Is there, is there anything that you wish that we had chatted about or that I, that I asked you um, in the show? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot. You know, <laughs> we covered the mystical traditions. We covered the simulation. We talked about startups and business, and those are kind of the the three big areas and clues and synchronicities. <laughs> you know, those are the areas that that I that I tend to talk about a lot. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I I know that I could talk to you for a lot longer, but uh, you got to go tend to the little one. Um, but where can people find more about you and your work? Where can they get your books? Because you know, I'm actually interested in all all three. Like I, I you know, moving in the podcast space, it's more of an art, 
you know, five years of basically art, you know, add on some censorship and some graphics like, Oh yeah. man, this, this art is not paying the heat bills. It's like, I got to focus <laughs> to the bills. It's, it's like, why did I choose an athlete? People don't even want mental training right now. Yeah. And I was like, no, it works. So, um, you know, just yeah. adjusting the practical business, but it's cool too, because you think about what, how will that improve their life? Right. And when you see the success right. of that, and like now it's been moving more into coaching, um, developing some of the other stuff of what my audience has asked for as far as meditations and things like that and getting the feedback of saying, Hey, this helped exactly what I was looking for. And it's like, it's value, right? Business for me is, is value and helping solve that need, right. In, in a meaningful way. And so, um, it's cool to have your book as a reference with the previous ones in, in simulation theory and Zen entrepreneurship. So where can people yeah. find those if they want to dive a little bit deeper? Sure. So they can go to my website, which is zenentrepreneur.com. Uh, and they can find me on Twitter at, uh, at Riz Stanford. Um, and of course, all the books are available on Amazon. So you can uh, search for my name there or just go to my website and there's links to, and I also write a, a ton of articles. There's actually free chapters you can download from uh, the latest book, Startup Myths and Models, as well as Simulation Hypothesis. Um, and yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with you there, you know, with the art and it's really the feedback that you get from people that keeps you going during that phase. You know, I mean, when I wrote Zen Entrepreneurship, uh, you know, I, I originally published it during the, the Bush years, and that was not a time people wanted to talk about Zen in business. <laughs> uh, you know, and then uh, I ended up doing a second edition back in 2013, uh, and I found that, you know, it, it, it sold quite well, and a lot of people, uh, you know, were excited about it because they were looking for a combination of business and spirituality. Like, it wasn't just about how to be rich or how to be enlightened, right? They were looking for something that was a, a merging of the two. And that's kind of how I got into writing in the first place. And so there's an element of that in, in, in all of my books. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I'm, I'm definitely excited to dive a little bit more into your work. Um, I invite people to check you out on Twitter. I'll make sure that I post all the links over there, but uh, thank you so much for your time and definitely look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, this was great. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Thanks guys. See you next time. Peace. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the absolutely phenomenal, amazing Riz Verk. Uh, I love this episode. It was so interesting. He's such a very, he's such a knowledgeable human, uh, very grounded. And uh, so many of those topics I, I started to dive deeper into, like, um, you know, it's all my favorite thing. Lucid dreaming, psychokinesis, spoon bending, the world as a hologram, uh, physics, it's amazing. Um, but also the, the yoga of Naropa, just such fascinating concepts all woven together. So I loved it. And I hope that you did too. If you enjoyed it, please share it, share it on everywhere you can. Uh, censorship is kind of real. So, uh, sign up for the email list at mattbelair.com so we can stay in touch. Uh, consider becoming a patron or joining the academy where you're going to get awesome amazing stuff in the academy exclusive content just for academy members i uh, would love to have you in there uh what else i think that's it uh, anything else probably not that important do a kind act in your community today that would be amazing leave a review on itunes that's the one that's super helpful if you want to do that i'd appreciate it um so that's it let's come into a state of peace and coherence wherever you are in the world just stop what you're doing take in a deep breath in through your nose Hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, enthusiasm, courage, inspiration, connection, and ready to take on the rest of the day. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>